Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. On the secular calendar, it's nearly the end of August, while on the Hebrew calendar, a new Hebrew month is just set to begin. It is the month of Elul, the only month in the Hebrew calendar that does not feature a holiday, a feast day, a fast day, or a memorial. And that's no coincidences. Our sages understood that we, the Jewish people, needed to prepare spiritually for Rosh Hashanah, the new year, when we are asked to make our apologies and amends and to accept with a forgiving spirit apologies made to us. Tradition teaches us that the month of Elul is particularly propitious time for repentance. The mood of repentance builds through the month of Elul to the period of Slichot, to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and finally to Yom Kippur, the 24-hour day of a Jewish atonement. The name of the month, spelled in Hebrew, Alad Lamed Vav Lamed is said by tradition to be an acronym of the Hebrew Ani Lododi Vedodi Li. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. A quote from the Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 3, where the beloved is understood to be God, and the I is understood to be the Jewish people. In Aramaic, the vernacular of the Jewish people at the time that the month, the names of the months were adopted, and of course, Aramaic, the language of the first century of the Common Era in which Jesus would have spoken, the word Elul means to search, which is appropriate because this is a time of year when Jews are asked to search their hearts. According to Jewish tradition, the month of Elul is the time that Moses spent on Mount Sinai preparing the second set of tablets after the incident in Exodus 32 and 34 regarding the burning of the golden calf. Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, tells us that Moses ascended again to Mount Sinai on Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first day of the month of Elul, and descended on the 10th of Tishrei, which would be at the end of the Hebrew holiday of Yom Kippur, when repentance is intended to be complete. Other rabbinic sources say that Elul is the beginning of a period of 40 days that Moses prayed for God to forgive the people after the incident of the golden calf, after which the commandment to prepare the second set of tablets was given. This is the only month in the Hebrew calendar in which there are customs assigned for the entire 30-day period. During the month of Elul, from the second day of Elul to the 28th day, the shofar, a hallowed-out ram's horn, is blown after morning services each weekday. The shofar is not blown on Shabbat. It is also not blown on the day before Rosh Hashanah 
to make clear the distinction between the rabbinic rule of blowing the shofar in Elul and the biblical mitzvah, the biblical commandment to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Four blasts of the shofar are offered. Tekiah, Shivarim, Teruah, and Tekiah. The Rambam, the medieval commentator Maimonides, explained the custom of blowing shofar as a wake-up call to sleepers designed to rouse us of our, from our complacency. Others understood it as a call to repentance. The blast of the shofar is a very piercing sound when done properly. Elul is also the time to begin the process of asking forgiveness for wrongs done to other people. According to Jewish tradition, God cannot forgive us for sins committed against another person until we have first obtained forgiveness from the person we have wronged. This is not an easy task, as you might think, if you have ever done it. This process of seeking forgiveness continues through the days of awe. Many people visit cemeteries at this time because the awe-inspiring nature of this time makes us think about life and death and our own mortality. As the month of Elul draws to a close, the mood of repentance becomes more urgent. Prayers for forgiveness, known as slichot, are added to the daily cycle of religious services. Slichot prayers are recited in the early morning before normal daily shacharit morning services. They add about 45 minutes to the regular daily service. Slichot are recited from Sunday before Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur. If Rosh Hashanah begins on a Monday or Tuesday, Slichot prayers begin on the Sunday of the week before Rosh Hashanah to make sure that there are at least three days of Slichot. The first Slichot service of the holiday season is usually a large community service held around midnight, the night after the Shabbat ends, the entire community including men and women and older children, attend the service, and the rabbi gives a sermon. The remaining slichot services are normally attended by those who ordinarily attend daily services. The Moxor Vitri, an 11th century work describing the yearly cycle of observances and prayers, tells us, about this custom of slichot at midnight on the Saturday before. It says, It is a custom to begin on the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah to rise early to the synagogue before the sun rises and begs of mercy. In the words of one of the poetic texts recited at the service, at the conclusion of the day of rest, meaning Shabbat, we come to meet you. Incline your ear from above, you who dwells amongst praise, to hear the song and the prayer. Slichot serves prayers for forgiveness are ancient prayers, 
already mentioned in the 2nd century BCE work known as the Mishnah. They originated as prayers for fast days. The Mishnah describes fast days and the order of prayer for such occasions as featuring a series of exhortations that ends with the words, He will answer us. Recalling the times in Jewish history when God answered those who called upon him. The book known as Tanya Deve Eliyahu Zuta, a work of Midrash stories that dates at least to the 9th century, mentions a special service for forgiveness instituted by King David when he realized that the temple would be destroyed. How will they attain atonement, he asked God, and was told that the people would recite the order of Slichot and then be forgiven. According to this ancient Midrash story, God even showed David that this act of contrition would include a recitation of the 13 attributes of God, not written until much later than the time of David, of course, a descriptive passage from Exodus that expresses God's merciful nature. Some of you will remember this passage from Exodus 34, Adonai, Adonai, El-Rachum v'chanum, O God, O God, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, rich in steadfast kindness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he does not remit all punishment. And these words recited in Hebrew become not only an important part of the Slichot liturgy, but become an essential part of the liturgy, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The name God, the Hebrew letters yud heh vav which is also pronounced as Yahweh by some, was consistently understood by the ancient rabbis as referring to the appearance of God in his attribute of mercy. Therefore, its repetition in this passage indicated that God was merciful at all times. As the Talmud put it, Adonai, Adonai, I am the same before one sins and after one sins and repents. A God compassionate and gracious, says the Mishnaic rabbi Judah, a covenant has been made concerning these attributes. They will never be turned away empty-handed. The Slichot service also emphasizes the 13 attributes. Over the centuries, special poems embellishing this passage were added to the Slichot service. The exact poems to be recited may differ from synagogue to synagogue, from country to country, but the basic elements of the service have remained the same throughout the Jewish world and throughout time. Because of its emphasis on God's forgiving nature, the text describing the 13 attributes plays an important role in the traditional Yom Kippur liturgy as well. The tradition of reciting Slichot throughout the month of Elul may stem from the fact that it was customary in ancient times to fast six days before Rosh Hashanah. That would have been a daytime fast, like on Yom Kippur, since the Slichot originated as prayers for fast days, 
It naturally followed that they would be recited at the time of fasting. Sephardic communities, those communities either representing Spanish-Portuguese Jews or North African Jews, began reciting Slichot at the beginning of Elul rather than just the week before Rosh Hashanah, so that a period of 40 days, similar as tradition suggested to the time that Moses spent on Mount Sinai, is devoted to prayers of forgiveness. Originally, Slichot were prayers were recited only in the morning prior to dawn. There was a custom in Eastern Europe that a person in charge of prayers would make the rounds of the village, knocking three times on each door, saying, Israel, holy people, awake, arouse yourselves and rise for the service of the Creator. It later became common practice to hold the first Slichot service, as I've already said, at a time convenient for most of the masses of people, and therefore the Saturday night service was moved to midnight. For those who attend this special Slichot service, the effect can be quite moving. The mere gathering together of people at a time when they are usually asleep is impressive. We sense the extraordinary nature of the prayer and turn introspectively within ourselves. The prayers themselves are a plea for mercy. In most synagogues, the melodies are sad and full of longing. Properly chanted, they form an oratorio expressing the despair that accompanies separation from God and the desire to change and repent. The self-deprecation contained in the words, which expresses the feeling of life's fleetingness and the burden of vanity that motivates so much of what one does, all cause us to ponder how we can break the cycle of our lives and change ourselves for the better. The possibility of change and of a better life is inherent in the Slichot prayers. Once more from the prayers, Adonai, hear our voice in the morning. In the morning we set them before you with hopeful expectation. Hear our prayers. It is always darkest before the dawn, yet the dawn is not far off, both literally and figuratively. Slichot, a time of consideration of the life that one has led from last Yom Kippur until this Yom Kippur. So I want to share with you a story. Not my own, but a story about Slichot and the images that are part of the Slichot experience. I hope you'll enjoy the story. It is written by Rabbi Moishala Zion. Listen carefully. The first cafe in Cairo opened in 1557. 
And it was long, wasn't long before the popular new drink, coffee, had swept the entire Ottoman Empire. Suddenly waking up early in the morning became that much easier. As one of the quirkiest articles in Jewish studies shows, the rising popularity of coffee catalyzed the popularity of soul-searching rituals by Muslim Sufis and Jewish mystics in the city of Safed. If staying up late at night is a time of bodily debauchery, early morning is the time of the pure soul. And it is the proliferation of coffee that is probably behind the proliferation of one of the most intense Jewish rituals, the waking up before sunrise for the recitation of Slichot. Recitation of Slichot, literally, forgiveness, is set in the days preceding Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and continues until Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Brewing great coffee is one thing, but what is the work of Slichot? In a few short days, the time will arrive in which the books are open, says the liturgy, and all is written in them, whom to life and whom to death, as the Talmud says of Rosh Hashanah. These are the same books we sing about in the most important prayer of the High Holy Days, Unatona Tokaf, that prayer written in the medieval time by the rabbi of Mainz says, on Rosh Hashanah we are written, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed. What is the book in which we are written? The rabbis were fond of the book metaphor and used it in various ways. The second century patriarch of the Jewish community, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, describes it in the following way. Look at three things and you will not make a mistake. Know that which is above you, a watchful eye and attentive ear, and all your acts are being written in the book. The book being read on Rosh Hashanah, the great record of life as written down by the ever watchful eye. The work of Slichot is preempting the grand reading of this book by assessing what is written in it. We collect our deeds, figuring out what we did this year as we line up our defenses, confess and come clean and hastily correct that which can be corrected before the trumpet sounds and court enters into session. As a child growing up, we used to wake up early and go to Slichot in the Ashkenazi synagogue down the road. It was an incongruous combination of chest-thumping, the guilty Jewish kind, and hastily mumbled litanies. The center of the Slichot is the recitation of the Vidui, the confession of sins, setting the stage for the grand confessions of Yom Kippur. As a post-bar mitzvah child, I was asked to read out my list of sins from that year. I lied. I betrayed. I disrespected my parents alongside sins that my early teens' imagination were quite confused by. Once confession was over, the work of penitence was to begin, which seemed to be an ordeal by mumbling. 
The experience confirmed everything that modernists disliked about religion. Cowering slaves in fear of being on trial by the all-knowing God. Grasping unto the unintelligible and unending poetry of long-deceased ancestors. I resented the book in which all is written and was alternatively cynical and terrified of the existence of a watchful eye and an attentive ear. It seemed that the high holy days were full of the ever-watchful God who, like the KGB or Facebook, has spies everywhere and knows what I'm up to at all times. This panopician approach to religion exactly what makes so many people stay at home on the high holy days. If that God exists, they say I'm not exist, interested in playing. And if he doesn't exist, there's no need for me to show up anyway. But I soon discovered, writes the rabbi, that this was far from the only experience of the holy days. When I was nine, he writes, I was invited by my teacher to Slichot at his synagogue, founded by Jews from Kurdistan. Here, Slichot were different experience. Cheesecake was served alongside the prayers. Sweet tea accompanied the confession. The poetry was sung at a slow, loving pace in beautiful Arab makams that showed all the vulnerability of human condition and the yearning for the presence of the divine. Human being, who do you sleep? Rise and call out in supplication. Pour out your words. Demand forgiveness from the one who resides on high. In the context of this modest Kurdistani minion, gathering of ten, the crisis was not that I had sinned. That was just a part of being human. The bigger drama was that by fessing up, I was taking ownership of what would be written in my book and in doing so in the compassionate presence of an ever outstretched hand. Inspired by that experience, I came to understand a different model for this divine bookkeeping. In the Slichot, we promise to search our ways and investigate and return to you. Thus, the first step of Slichot is the gathering of our deeds, our words, and signs from the past year. As the seasonal Naomi Shemer, the great Israeli poet, says, Gather your deeds, the words, and signs like a blessed crop too heavy to convey. Gather the blossoming, which has since become a memory of a summer that ended too soon. What happens when we gather our deeds? This is not an actuary act of taking stock or judging ourselves. It is an act of storytelling. All your acts are written in a book. By gathering ourselves the past year, we weave together our own story our autobiography as we would like it to be told. We take authorship of the book of our lives. We, having busily rewritten our own book during these early mornings of Slichot, we present it 
for the divine reading on Rosh Hashanah and wait review by Yom Kippur. If in the Eastern European Ashkenazi slichot of my childhood, God felt like a harsh judge. In that small Sephardic Kurdistani synagogue, I met God, who is a more compassionate editor, calling us out on the places we fudged it, demanding we snip out certain pieces, but all in all a collaborator on the joint project, which is our life story. The watchful eye and the attentive ear are not waiting for me to trip up, but rather like a sharp editor who is invested in the outcome as I am. Seeing the process of Slichot as retelling the narrative of lives is engaging in what the philosopher Jerome Bruner calls life-making. Human beings are by nature storytellers, says Bruner, and he quotes John Paul Sartre, a man is always a teller of stories. He lives surrounded by his own stories and those of others. He sees everything that happens to him in terms of these stories and tries to live his life as he were recounting it. So says Sartre in his famous work, The Words. All your acts are written in a book. Indeed, we are constantly telling and retelling our own story. Truth has never been true as in the Facebook era we lived in where we are constantly documented on a timeline for all the watchful eyes and attentive ears to like. Scrolling down the news feed gives a strong sense of being surrounded by one's own stories and those of other people. If we put Facebook aside, says the rabbi, the stories we tell of ourselves each year are often too concerned with external achievements. What did I achieve, conquer, and win? And the narratives of other people have written for us. Slichot is about taking ownership of our own story as we would like it to be, focusing it on a realm of internal attainment. Who was I this year? How did I behave? Israeli psychologist Mordechai Rotenberg calls this midrashic autobiography and uses it as a therapeutic tool, Slichot, create the setting for us to gather our deeds and write our own Midrashic autobiography. The act of self-storytelling can be a very self-involved work. Yet, returning to Judah Hanasi's saying with new eyes might serve as a corrective. Know that which is above you, a watchful eye, an attentive ear, and all your acts are being written in a book. This season of Slichot which begins in the month of Elul, invites us to write a book that is aware of that which is above you. Perhaps we are no longer living in a world of divine, watchful eyes and attentive ears. But as much as we love our autonomy and independence, we also yearn to be a part of something larger than ourselves. That's something from above, call it an organizing narrative, a higher power, a larger project, can serve as the sharp editor we need as we inscribe our story into the book of life. Slichot is just as much about ensuring the future as it is revisiting the past. Bruner, being the constructionist that he is, makes a further point. When we are telling our story, we are not only reconstructing the past, but setting the schemes and routines of the future. 
by telling the story of the past year as we would like it to be told. We are setting up the story that we will find ourselves weaving in the year to come. Indeed, such world-making is the principal function of mind. We do it all the time. We might as well be purposeful about it. And this is, writes Rabbi, the best done by waking up early in the morning, making a strong cup of coffee and taking in our lives. In the quiet before dawn, with the smartphone still asleep and the stories of the rest of the world tells not yet awakened, we can slowly gather our deeds, the words and signs, and retell the story as we would like it to be told before the summer ends too soon, before the book are opened and read for another year. All of that story is from Rabbi Mishael Zion. I hope you've enjoyed that story. I hope you have a sense of slichot and the power of slichot for the members of the Jewish community who will take the time during this month of Elul to write their own stories so that the book that they create is the book of their lives. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts wishing you a good day. Shalom.